This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Equity Mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help you break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm good, Bryce. Uh, it's that time of year again, tax time. Yes. We actually called this episode, uh, when we were planning it, Make Bryce Excited About Tax. Yeah, uh, I love we, tax though. Yeah, it's, it's weird. I don't know why we called it that because <laughs> this is actually your Christmas. It is my Christmas. You love it. You tax keep time, all your yeah. receipts all year. You track all your dividends in a spreadsheet. <laughs> and then this is the time where it all comes to fruition. Yes. Uh, but we're not here to do this ourselves. We are bringing in one of the experts who has joined us on the show before. Uh, it is our pleasure to welcome Charlie from Pitcher Partners to the show. Charlie, welcome. G'day, gents. How are we? Good. Good, good. Excited for tax time. Oh, yeah. It's, it's certainly like an accountant's Christmas, 30 <laughs> June. So uh, we at an accounting firm have a 30 June party every year and we always call it our winter Christmas party. So oh, yeah, nice. It uh, allows all of the accounting guys to, to let their hair down and, <laughs> and have a heap of fun. So, you know. <laughs> well, look, every year we get asked to do a episode on tax and um, Bryce and I are by no means tax experts. Bryce is more of a tax enthusiast, we could say. Uh, so we're glad that you've joined us today, Charlie, to uh, add a little bit of expertise to to this conversation and and answer some questions from the Equity Mates community. We've gone out to them, asked what they what questions they have, and uh, we'll be throwing all the hard ones at you today. But if you haven't come across uh, Charlie Viola before, he's a partner at Pitcher Partners, providing financial advisory and wealth services to high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals, specializing in ongoing investment management and administrative services. Charlie is personally responsible for over $1.5 billion of funds under management. He has been recognized by Barron's as the number one advisor in Australia in 2018 and uh, number four in 2019. And I think... The rankings have just come out for 2021. How'd we go, Charlie? Yeah, I got robbed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was was number 10. No, look, in all seriousness, there are like 14,000 advisors in the country, right? So uh, to be ranked amongst the top 10, uh, I guess, is, you know, it's humbling and and a bit of an honour and all all of that sort of stuff. Um, And, you know, 
It's good work from a marketing perspective. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, if anyone from Barron's is listening, uh, listen to this episode and then uh, you need to re-rate Charlie for 2022. Yep. And if yeah. you haven't uh, listened to the episode that we did with Charlie, uh, it was at the start of the year. Yeah. You must go and listen to that because he provides some uh, pretty fascinating in- insight into how he thinks about portfolio construction and investing across uh, different asset classes. Before we get stuck in a disclaimer and disclosure, though, the hosts of Equity Mates uh, here are not licensed professionals uh, and Charlie is authorized to provide tax advice as it relates to financial advice and as consequence of investments. None of us are aware of your personal financial circumstances and all comments will be general in nature. So if you have any questions, please see a licensed financial professional and get your own tax advice that takes into account your personal circumstances. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And always remember that uh, an accountant's services to to prepare your tax return are tax deductible. Yes. So Yeah, and, and probably important to to think, like I'm an investment guy, right? Like my job day to day is help people find the right assets, buy the right assets at the right time, put the right money into the right buckets. Uh, but it's very hard to do my job without sufficient tax knowledge. So, uh, you know, so, so whenever we're talking to a client about um, taking value, moving money around their portfolio, uh, changing ownership, uh, all those things have tax consequences. So really all of the questions that will probably address today are all some of those um, really quite kind of simple, you know, how are things taxed, how's capital gains tax work, all things that as an investment person, you really need to know when you're advising clients. So while it's not the primary thing uh, that we do, we have a good depth of knowledge around this stuff because it impacts outcomes over time. So, Well, let's get stuck into it, shall we? We'll start with the basics of tax, Charlie. Then we're going to talk a bit about dividend income and franking credits, go a little bit deeper on capital gains, think about overseas, and then also look at some tax deduction stuff. Plenty to get through. And a lot of this is straight from the equity mates community. So let's start with the very basic uh, question of how are investments taxed in Australia? So investments are taxed in Australia just like any other income or or returns. So um, if an investment that you have generates income, whether it be by dividend or distribution, then you'll pay tax on that income. So that income gets added to your uh, income for the year. And when you do your tax return at the end of the year, you'll pay tax on it. If you make a capital gain uh, on that investment, which simply means that if you you know buy something um, for a dollar and you sell it for two dollars, you've made a capital gain, you'll pay tax on that capital gain. And, and we'll talk about, I think, the specifics about how those gains get taxed. But while there will be some other complexities that go with that in terms of deferred income from various different trusts, etc., Generally speaking, for the types of investments that most of the equity mates community are holding, so you know, you know, sort of widely held ETFs which are generating um, dividends and distributions, that income has to turn up into your tax return, and you have to pay tax on it. Mm, and uh, speaking of investments that the equity mates community hold, we will be talking about crypto uh, later in this episode. So I know a lot of people have questions on that. We will get to that. Uh, But if we stick with the basics, uh, Isabel in the equity mates community asked, uh, how is capital gains tax calculated? Right. So if you sell an asset for more than you bought it, then you have a capital gain. So like really simple maths and we'll we'll do the, the maths example. So if you bought something for say $5, 
and you sold it for $15, then you've made a $10 capital gain. That $10 of capital gain is effectively taxable. So it's taxable income. So now probably the right time to say this, that $10 will turn up in your tax return. Now, whether it's all of the $10 that turns up in your tax return or half of it that turns up depends on how long you've held the asset for. So where you've held the asset for more than 12 months, you get a 50% discount. So again, simply, if we buy an asset for five, we sell it for 15, we make a $10 capital gain. If you've done that within a 12-month period, the $10 gets added to your income for the year and gets taxed as part of your normal income when you do your tax return at the end of the year. If you've held the asset for more than 12 months, then you get a 50% discount. So that $10 gain that you made, only $5 gets added to your tax return at the end of the year. And that ignores uh, any of the the, uh, loss provisions where you've made a capital loss previously on another asset. Let's put a pin in that and get to that later. Let's stick with the basics for now. I think that uh, capital gains discount point is important though. It's not like that your tax rate changes. It's just the amount of the gain that is taxed changes. If you think about tax in the really simplest fashion, all that happens at the end of the year is the tax office just seeks to add up all of the income that you've earned, right? Mm. So if you think about it in like Bryce's spreadsheet, all you're doing is- (laughs) Some all. Yeah, um, some all. So literally all you're doing is adding your employment income to your dividend income, to your distributions, to uh, the income from your gardening and your cleaning job. uh, And then the income that you get added to that from a capital gain uh, is- is either the whole amount or half the amount, depending upon how long you held the asset for. And then you get a sum total at the end of what your taxable income is. It's that taxable income number that determines what your marginal tax rate is. Yeah. So some people will go, oh, capital gains tax. If I hold it for more than 12 months, my tax rate's 23.5% or it's 24%. It's not. That's simply by virtue, if you're on the top marginal tax rate, uh, that um, you, you, people are just assuming that it's 50%. Simply, you add the 50% to your income yeah. for the year. Geez, it'd be nice if you cut your tax in half. <laughs> so, um, and just on that capital gains tax discount, Charlie, is that applied to like all asset classes? All it's asset classes. not discriminatory. It's just not flat. Not discriminatory on the basis that uh, the asset is considered, for want of a better term, property. Yeah. So um, shares are in that in that same bucket and we'll get to it, but crypto is in that same bucket. Yeah. It's, it's, it's treated like property. Mm. So whether it's whether you've bought shares for a dollar and sold them for five, you've made a capital gain. Yeah. So the $4 of, of gain uh, gets added to, to, to your taxable income, unless you've held it for more than 12 months, at which $2 would. Um, same with crypto, same with property, and really same with virtually every asset class. The only one that's not is foreign currency. It's the only one that's not as foreign currency. Foreign currency is basically treated as income. So if you buy a foreign currency uh, for one thing and you sell it for another, it's it's that's treated as income. There you go. Don't trade foreign currency. So I've never even had to think about that. Uh, the next question we had was, uh, is dividend income traded differently to income from your job? And, and you have sort of answered that before, that you take all the different pockets of income and different ways you make money and it all rolls up into your total amount. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, um, so the answer is, 
No, not really. You just add up all of your income at the end of the year and then you'll, you'll end up with a taxable a taxable income amount. And remembering your taxable income is simply a product of add all of your incomes together, put them all in the spreadsheet and, and sum all, add them all together, and then you'll get the bottom number and then you'll less your deductions. So where you've got deductions for, you know, education expenses or interest expense or, you know, work-related expenses, and then you have your taxable income number and you pay tax on that taxable income number. And that determines what marginal tax rate you're in, depending upon which band you sit within. Mm. So for those people who are lucky enough to be earning over 180000 obviously their marginal tax rate over that amount is the, is the 49 mm. cents in the dollar. Yeah. Now, Charlie, Bryce and his girlfriend, Harriet, uh, may need to file a joint tax return <laughs> for the first time ever this year. Not big, true. Not big true. step for Bryce. <laughs> and he's hoping that Harriet is, inf- is as enthusiastic <laughs> about tax as he is. Um, what do they need to know? Does anything change uh, from uh, filing as a single person to filing as a couple? Yeah, there's no such thing as a joint tax return. So there's no such thing as a joint oh, that, tax that's return. That's why you're the expert. So, um, <laughs> so everybody, everybody does their own individual tax returns. So so um, the only the only reason why you put spousal income on each other's tax return generally is for like Centrelink for Centrelink purposes and for some Medicare benefits and those types of things. But no, Harriet and Bryce have to do their own individual tax returns. Um, if, for instance, they've now got a joint bank account uh, and you know they're, they're stashing all of their millions of dollars in a joint bank account at 0.01%, uh, the 0.01% of income, because it's a joint bank account, they effectively get half of it each and half of it goes into their individual tax returns. So that would be the same for like uh, same income. name. Yeah, dividend yep. income or anything yep. that assets are held jointly, yep. you split that. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Do you have to split it? Yes. Right. Yep. So you because can't just be like you've earned- No. So you're both on you're both on title. So um, or you both own that asset. So you're getting half of the income each. Well, I'm glad we're doing solo at the moment because I don't want to see Harriet. I don't want Harriet to see my crypto trading. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and does the same apply for deductions as well? Like if they got a joint bank account and they're spending on things together, do you just split it down the middle? Yep. Okay. Yep. It's exactly the same. So if you own again for 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 ease of the example, if you own an investment property together. And, you know, you've got the simple investment property, which is negatively geared. You're effectively getting half of that negative um, gearing benefit each in that you're claiming half of the deduction each. But no, everybody has to do their own tax return. All right. So um, got a couple here just to quickly close out. This one's from John and Tom, and I think we have answered but it, answered it. But it's, um, is there a different tax treatment between trading and investing? How do you determine which is which? And I would assume that that just comes down to your time frame between if you've sold within 12 months or not. Am I right? Uh, yeah, no, not quite. Actually, oh. that's a really good question. Let's not try and, and answer the question ourselves. <laughs> so that's actually a really good question from John and Tom, um, and it's quite specific. So generally, for most of us, we will um, will be treated as it'll be treated as investing. Yeah. So where if you buy something and then sell it, it'll be treated in the capital gains tax net, or effectively on what what's considered on capital account. Where you move from doing things from an investment perspective to operating a business that is trading, at that point you're then going to have everything on revenue account, which is treated as treated as income. Right. So okay. where it's your business to buy and sell things. 
So where it's your business to buy and sell things, that's considered as that's effectively considered as trading stock, uh, and that then everything, including your gains, will simply be treated as as income. Where you're investing and you're not running a business which is trading things, then because um, remembering that, let's say you make a capital gain, but then you make and you make that within 12 months, it's taxed at, that the whole amount is added to your tax return, effectively taxed at, at your at your own marginal tax rate. But don't forget, if you make a loss, you're offsetting that loss against the gain. So there is a difference being treated as effectively investing versus trading. And where this all came from was, you know, I think, you know, when the tax office came up with their rules a thousand years ago, it was for farmers because they were trading, you know, sheep and cows and whatever else uh, effectively as trading stock. But it works exactly the same way for property developers, for instance, um, when they go and they put up a great big, you know, ton of units somewhere and they sell those, they're selling those on income account, not on capital account. Yeah. So if you're running a business, yeah, to be really clear, if if you are running a business that is the trading, it's all treated as income, so it's revenue of that business. If you are simply investing, um, and it becomes a little bit of a grey line, you can probably get away with having things done as an investor for a while, but if you start to create a real pattern of this, then the ATO will get wise to it sooner or later. So, so there are some examples where this is uh, obvious, you know, like if you're not working a nine to five job and you're trading and that trading is your sole source of income, like that's, that's a business. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that that would be a business. Lots of people won't treat it that way for a year or two. And it, it's sooner, sooner or later, you know, that person's accountant will kind of go, we need to show this as trading income. Um, because remembering that those people are still getting a little bit of a free kick by reducing their taxable income because of any losses that they would have seen throughout the year. Mm. So. But what? If, so what if you are working a nine to five? Are there any ways that that would then have to be treated not as investment? That would have to be treated as trading. Like if you make more money as a trader than you do from your nine to five, or if you do a certain number of trades a year, mm. anything like that? No, all, all those things are irrelevant. It's just are you carrying on a business okay. that is um, that's in the business of trading that stock, whatever that stock might be, whether it's shares, whether it's property, whether it's you know whether it's sheep and cows. Um, if you're running a business that is that is effectively doing that, then you're said to be running a business and therefore it's all on income account. Mm. So if I set up a a holding company and just did all my investments through that, that's what would be the case? Especially, no. It's only (laughs) if, again, if you're running a business doing that um, and if you create a pattern where you're buying things in the morning and selling them in the afternoon and your total, that company's only ability to generate revenue is the buying and selling of things, then it would be argued that that's that's trading stock as opposed to making investments where remembering that making investments sometimes just as a result of that, you're going to make capital gains and you're going to make capital losses. Again, in the real world, what happens is everybody starts with the investment mindset and it's only after doing it for a period of time that the accountant or the ATO kind of go, you've, you've had too many transactions, you're doing this as a business and you're seeking to generate profit as a business doing this. Yeah, gotcha. So if we move to a question from Inna from our Facebook group, um, what happens if you do or you don't provide a tax file number to your share registry? So if you don't provide the tax file number to the share registry, they'll simply withhold the top marginal tax rate of the dividend. Um, if you do provide it, they'll just pass it all through. So and then and then it'll be up to you as to how you declare that income in your in your tax return. So right. provide your tax file number because it's a it's a it's a punish <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So uh, let's move on to dividend income and franking credits. Uh, let's start at the top again. Let's define franking credits. W- what are they? Yeah. So simply, it's the tax that's already been paid by the company. So um, if you hold especially a big Australian company, pick a company, CBA, it makes profit, it pays tax on its profit. But you as a shareholder receive a dividend from that company. When it pays you that dividend, it'll generally pay you that dividend in two pieces. It'll give you cash and it'll give you a, a credit for the tax that they've already paid on your behalf. So the franking credit um, is the credit of the tax that they've already paid on that dividend on your behalf. Does that make sense? Yeah, which yeah. means you don't cop it on your end. Um, uh, no. So what happens in reality <laughs> – sorry. No, I'm loving this. I'm loving this. <laughs> so what happens in reality – again, let's just use CBA as an example. If CBA pay you $100 of dividend and that's the grossed up amount, so that's the total, that's the total dividend, um, they will give it to you as $70 of cash and $30 of franking credit. So you get you physically get $70 of cash and you get a credit for the $0.30 cents or the $30 that they've, that they've paid. Yeah, but what you put on your tax return or what goes into your tax return is a hundred dollars because you've actually got a hundred dollars of taxable income. It's just that they've paid thirty dollars of that for you. So if at the end of the year, just using that one dividend and that that one simple example, if at the end of the year your marginal tax rate is less than thirty cents in the dollar or less than thirty percent, you get a refund of your franking credits because you've paid more tax than you should have. If your marginal tax rate is higher than 30, then you pay the top-up tax because you've only paid 30 of the 49 that you should have. If we go back to the last federal election, if we remember, and where Shorten and Bowen lost the election effectively because they were trying to take away the excess franking credits, what they were effectively seeking to do for all those people who had excess franking credits, where at the end of the year, when you add it all up, the individual's marginal tax rate was lower than 30 cents in the dollar, and therefore they got a refund, Shorten and Bowen were trying to take that and, and there'd be no refund. So you can use the credit, but you wouldn't get a refund of the excess of the credit. And that's why there was this thing about, oh, you're really only, um, you know, taxing little old ladies with their CBA, their CBA shares because that's who it mainly affected. It mainly affected self-funded people uh, who, are, who are maybe generating seventy dollars or $80,000 a year of investment income. They've probably got too much money to have an age pension. It was their sole source of income. But, but once you averaged it out, their marginal tax rate was less than $0.30 cents in the dollar, so they were getting a refund of those excess franking credits to bring them back down to their normal marginal tax rate. So it affected them and it affected super funds because especially self-managed super funds because self-managed super funds have, has, you know, sorry, all super funds have got a maximum tax rate of 15%, which means that if the franking credit is at 30, then there was lots of those excess franking credits coming back. And that's what Shorten and Bowen were seeking to be able to add to their revenue account. Uh, they, they were seeking to take that excess away. Nice. That makes complete sense. So that that's what a franking credit is. Um and I guess the, the question that comes out of that is, uh, as a retail investor, how do you find out, one, if you earned any franking credits, and then two, uh, if you did earn them, how do you actually claim them? Yeah. So um, how you know that you've got them, you're going to get a dividend statement and it'll tell you. Um, 
on the basis that you're providing your tax file number to the registry, remember all of your dividend income and all of your franking credit information actually flows directly into what we call your pre-fill, so your pre-filled tax return. It's already there, really. You just got to go onto the pre-fill. You just got to go onto the tax site um, or tell your accountant to check that you know it, it's all been there and it's all flowed through properly. So in effect, what tends to happen is someone will quote something as being, oh, I got $100 of fully frank dividend, yeah? So just important on the terminology, the example I used before where CBA have, have made $100 of profit, they've paid $30, $30 on that profit, they've given you 70 the terminology there was would be that you got a $70 fully franked dividend because you then need to gross it up. And there is a really simple mathematical equation where you simply take the dividend times it by 30 divided by 70 and it'll give you the franking credit number and you add the two together and that's your taxable that's your taxable income. Does that make sense? So if I simply went $70 times 30 divided by 70, it gives me 30. 30 plus 70 is my $100 of, of taxable income. So with any individual at the end of the year, when they see all of their income, they'll see their investment income as being, I don't know, $25,000. Um, that 25000 will then have the franking credit attached to it. So there might be $5,000 or $4,000 of franking credits. All that happens is, is that when they add the, if it's 25000 of of income and 4000 of franking credits, when they add the $29,000 to their tax return as income, they will have already paid $4,000 of tax. So they're not getting taxed on that again. So again, remember we said before that tax in Australia is really simple. Just add up all the rows and you get to the bit at the, you get to the bit at the bottom. One of the rows is the franking credits. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the bottom and you say, okay, well now I've got my taxable income number. I pay tax on that. So if you've made a hundred thousand dollars of income, you're going to pay for easy math, say $24,000 of tax on that hundred thousand of income. But of that $24,000 of tax, I've got to pay how much have I already paid? But you've already paid the franking credit amount, yeah? Because it's already been withheld. It's already been paid to the tax office by the company. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, and then I think the next question was, what happens if someone isn't paying where it's partially franked? Yeah, you've yeah. nailed it. Yeah, where yeah. it's partially franked. All that means is is that um, not all of the distribution that's been paid to you has already had tax paid on it. So that same simple equation that I used before, which was take your dividend amount that you've received in cash, times it by 30, divided by 70. You then times it by by the percentage of that dividend that is franked. So if it is 100% franked, it's just 70 times 30 divided by 70 times one because the whole thing. But if it's only 50% franked, then they've only they've only withheld a portion of the tax on that uh, on that dividend. So you simply go um, 70 times 30 divided by 70 times whatever percentage the franking was. Mm. This is often easier done with a whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll get Charlie back. We just bought a new whiteboard. Yeah, it's a massive yeah. one. So we'll get you in front of the whiteboard. I must say, the these offices are much more fancy than the last place I did the podcast in. So. <laughs> hey, we're living up in the world, Charlie. So, Charlie, so that that's um, dividends in cash. For a lot of our community, uh, dividends will be part of a dividend reinvestment plan. How do you treat that when it comes to tax time? No, no different. 
um, just because what you've done is is used that cash to go and buy more shares, you've still got to pay tax on the income. So that because that's all that's happening, you're just making an election to take your cash and go back and buy more shares. You've still got to pay tax on that income because you, you've still physically received the income. You've just used it for another purpose. So instead of buying bread and milk and rice and race cars or whatever it is that people do with their money, <laughs> you've decided to buy more shares. Bread, yeah. milk, rice, race cars. That, that's Charlie's yeah. shopping list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so on, the, on that, you were explaining how with the CBA example, you get $70, uh, $70 in cash, $30 in franking credits. Uh, with the dividend reinvestment, uh, are they reinvesting the four hundred, or are they reinvesting just the seventy? Just the seventy. And so, does that mean you can still claim, even if you're reinvesting the dividends, you can still claim the franking credits in yeah, that year? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because it's yeah. still taxable income, but there is only seventy dollars of physical cash for them to be able to go and buy shares. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because the rest of it, they've already paid to the tax office, yeah. so they don't physically have that anymore. It's a, it's a credit in the tax system. Yeah. Now, Charlie, uh, we could talk franking credits and income all day, but uh, let's move to capital gains. And a really common question we saw in the Facebook group was around um, the practice of dollar cost averaging, where you buy over time at different prices, uh, potentially over years, and then you sell some, and or you sell all of it. And how the hell do you treat that uh, for, for tax purposes? So let's let's separate selling some and selling all. Um, and start with selling all because I imagine that's going to be simpler. If if you know Bryce and I have been dollar cost averaging over a number of years into an ETF, and then we sell it all uh, in this financial year, how do we think about that for tax? It's just simply your blended or your average your average cost base over that time. So uh, if you've continued to you know buy shares that have continued to go up, and sometimes they go down and whatever, it'll just be whatever that the, the blended or average cost base over the whole time frame is. So. Um, which means that you do need to um, either have a, a good broker that can show you the line-by-line tax lot so you can average it out. Um, often with most of the, the, the broking accounts now, it actually shows you your average yeah. price. Yeah, anyway. I was going to say, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that one's really easy. So it's you know, whatever that average or blended price is. Um, with partial, yeah, um, it's kind of the same but just slightly more complex in that each of those purchases that you've made month by month, year by year, whatever it is, is effectively a different tax lot. So each of those tax lots, for want of a better word, are basically treated separately from a capital gains tax perspective. So when you go to sell some of the shares, uh, all that you need to do is either do one of two things. You either elect which tax lots you're physically selling. So you can pick and choose. And we do this all of the time, right? We pick and choose because we want the optimum tax outcome at that point in time. So if we're offsetting capital gains, then we'll go to the ones where we're making losses and we'll sell those first. Yeah. Um, if we've got other losses and we want to clear out a bit of stuff now, then we'll go and get the hot, we'll go and get the ones with the biggest gains because we know we've got some other losses uh, to offset against it. But yes, the answer is you can pick and choose which tax lots. If you don't make an election which tax lots, the ATO will simply do what's called FIFO, first in, first out. So it'll simply take the oldest ones and assume that they're the ones that you're selling. And when you say if you don't make an election, like how do you actually make that election? You just tell your accountant when you're doing your tax return. (laughs) Because when you do your tax return, when you make a capital gain, you actually have to input the cost base. So if there's no cost base that's been input, then effectively the prefill will just pick up your your first, the first ones that that you've done. So yeah, FIFO doesn't stand to fly in, fly out. It's first in, first out (laughs) Um, in in this scenario. Uh, 
there is a piece around this about record keeping. I was just going to say that. people tend to forget a little bit. Um, and what's probably happened in the past where people have forgotten, they've just ended up blending through any partials, the whole of it over time, um, which – the tax offers tend to be reasonably relaxed about that. They don't really care too much as long as at the end, once they're all sold, it's kind of the same outcome. But the best way to maximise your outcomes is know what your tax lots are. So know what you're bought in at and, main, and maintain a, a record of those. Yeah, which is really just how many when, – when did you buy, at what price, price. how many? Yep, and that's, that's exactly it. That's it, yeah. Which the broker account will tell you. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. so this is from Brendan. What is capital gains tax offsetting and how does it work? Yeah, so when you make a when you make a capital loss, you can offset that loss against future capital gains. So again, if we just go back to the the very early example, I bought something for five, I've sold it for fifteen, I made a ten dollar capital gain. Before I apply the discounting to that ten dollars, so whether I've held it for twelve months or not, I work out whether or not I've got any carry forward capital losses where I've sold something for a loss. And, and I offset that capital gain with the loss that I've made. So if in another transaction, I bought something for 10 and sold it for three, because it was terrible, then I've made a $7 capital loss. So I take my $10 gain, I reduce that by the $7 of loss that I've made. I've now only got $3 of capital gain, and I then discount that $3. I think that's an important point that you apply the discount after, you, after you do the offsetting. So, so you apply the discount after the – so you do the offsetting of the capital gain first yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the discount. Yeah. Yeah. So, Charlie, you were just explaining uh, how you offset the order in which you offset compared to uh, the 50% capital gains discount. I guess the final part of this is are there any rules around like how long you can hold on to offsets or does it, like, does it have to be in the same tax year or anything like that? Yeah, so capital gains that you made, you always pay the capital gains tax in the year that you made the gain. With losses, you carry forward those losses indefinitely until you use them. And those losses you'll carry forward and they just simply die with you. So if you're unlucky enough and you're a crap investor and all you've ever made is losses, <laughs> then you'll die with lots of capital you losses. You can't put them in your will? No, no, no. <laughs> they, uh, they, they die with you, um, which is actually a really good point, right? From an estate planning point of view, if you've got this – whopping big share portfolio with a, with this whopping big capital gain because, you know, you bought CBA shares at $9.50 and CSL at $1.50 and whatever else. But all the way along, you've accumulated these, these, these losses. When somebody goes to inherit those shares, they inherit all of your cost bases. Uh, but, but the capital losses that you might've accumulated and carried forward forever and ever die with you. Oh, the ATA there got us go. there. That's annoying. <laughs> so, and you, if, and you inherit their, if you inherit their cost base and then you sell as soon as you inherit the shares, you then can claim that capital loss. Nope. No, no, no. no. You, you have to pay the capital gain. You've got to pay the capital gain at that point. But the loss is gone. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Because the, the losses die. So um, carry forward losses die with the individual that had those losses. Right. Um, and everybody will always know what they're carry forward capital loss position is because there's a line item in your tax return that actually shows you what your prior year carry forward losses are. And then if you're if you're accumulating them, then that number will continue to accumulate over time. Mm. And it's a really important piece from a planning point of view. So if you want to take value on some investments and stuff, um, often a good time to do that is where you've cleaned out a bit of the, the, the crappy part of your portfolio that you didn't like and you've made some losses. Use those losses to offset the good parts of your portfolio where you are taking a bit of value or taking a bit of money off the top to, you know, 
buy bread and milk and rice and mm. rice cars. Rice cars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if people, if people are unsure of like what we mean here, like the very practical example is I lost a hell of a lot of money on my first investment Slater and Gordon. If I had never lost any money on an investment uh, after that, and I'd claimed my loss on Slater and Gordon back in like 2013 or whenever it was, um, I could still have that on my tax return. If you haven't used if, so haven't, you, yeah, if you haven't yeah. used it up, yep, it's still in your tax return. Yeah. Yep. So the you know the the twenty thousand dollars that you lost on uh, on that not trade, quite that much. <laughs> I was a struggling uni student, couldn't um, quite afford race cars. <laughs> but you, uh, yeah, so you'll carry that loss forward until you use it. Until you use it. So given how good you guys are at this, I'm sure you've used it, you know, you've, you've offset it and made lots of capital gains along the way. Um, and do you, have to, do, you, do you have to use it when you get capital gains or can you choose not to and like hold it in reserve? No, you have yeah, to use you it. you have to use it. Yep. Okay. So it's an, automatic, it's an automatic process in your tax return. Remember the tax return process in Australia is really simple. It's all very automated. It'll automatically work out what your capital gains tax is and it automatically picks up those carry forward losses. Can you retrospectively claim a loss? Like if I, if Ren didn't claim that uh, Slater and Gordon loss from six years ago, can he put it on his tax return for this year? No. Okay. So no. you've got to do it for um, that year. So the only time that you can do that, and there's some there's some good tax precedent in this, is if you, you weren't aware, you didn't know uh, that you need to go to the, the tax office and get a private ruling. So you need to right. like hire a really good tax accountant yeah, yeah, and stuff yeah. and go and get a private ruling. So it would have to be substantial and, and, you know, property developers and those types of people do that sort of stuff all the time because it's substantial. I probably wouldn't do it for the $9.20. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it was more than $9.20, but I'm not going to the ATO. <laughs> so to close this section out on capital gains, um, this is a combined question from uh, Ina and Gary. What is a wash sale and how does the ATO determine a wash sale v selling to minimize your loss and then buying back in. Yeah, so wash sale is where you um, where you sell and buy the same thing effectively at the same time to create a, a, a capital loss um, or to offset other gains that you've got. So, um, again, really simple example. Let's assume that uh, Inna or Gary have uh, sold their CSL shares that they've made a whopping big gain on uh, and they're now holding a different share that's, that's sitting at a loss position but they really like it, right? They want to hold it for the long term. Um, so what they would do is they would sell the stock that they like and that they want to hold, but are sitting at a loss um, to, to create a capital loft, to offset the capital gain on on CSL. Uh, but then they would just rebuy that share back again at the lower cost base. Yeah. So they're effectively washing that share. So they're washing their new X shares or whatever it might be that they're now sitting on a big loss on. Um <laughs> Uh, and they're rebuying it reduces it effectively reduces their cost base and they're using that loss against the other gain. Uh, the tax office take a very dim view and it's what's considered part 4A, which is the part of the Tax Act, which is um, tax avoidance. So you are allowed to minimise your tax. You are not allowed to avoid paying tax. Washing is considered tax avoidance. What's the difference? It's timing. It's how quickly you do it, to be fair. So do people do it? Absolutely. Um, should you do it? Absolutely not. Yeah. When you say it's timing, are there any hard and fast rules around timing or is it more a vibe of the thing that ATO will assess it? 
like same day is is the, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just same 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 day is not the right way to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we need to be really careful here in terms of telling people, you know, give it two weeks and redo it because it's still a wash at that point. I'm not um, saying if this is like an opinion, I'm more like is the, does the ATO have or are there any legislative rules? If not, then let's not. So, so yeah. the, the, rules are, the rules are pretty simple here. If you're doing it for the purposes of avoiding tax on something else, then it's a wash regardless mm-hmm. of, of when you do it. Okay. Um, you know, is it standard practice to do it with a bit of a gap in between? Probably. Um, but it's still – if you're doing it for the purposes of avoiding tax on something else, then it's a wash sale and it's yeah. and and it's using those avoidance measures which aren't allowed. Yeah. So before we move on, Charlie, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Now, as investing gets global, uh, we're obviously moving some cash overseas and investing directly in other markets. So this one's from Tom and Kush. Are overseas investments treated differently to Australian investments for Australian taxpayers, particularly around overseas capital gains and losses and dividend income? Yeah, no, not really. So um, remembering as a as an Australian resident for tax purposes, you're taxed on your worldwide income. And that includes your investment income. So whatever income that investment produces uh, just will fall into your tax return as normal. So um, for for most of us who hold you know shares in. I don't know platinum or Magellan or whoever. When you when you buy those investments on day one, you'll actually complete a tax withholding form called the um, the, the W four or W eight Ben. Um, the W eight Ben is effectively the the US withholding form. Um, in effect, that allows the that that allows the IRS or the other tax jurisdiction to withhold a portion of of your tax. But because we have a double tax agreement, you actually get a credit for the foreign tax that's been paid. All right. Okay. And how do how do we see that credit and claim that credit? It, it flows through. So you'll get a tax statement from Platinum or Vanguard or Magellan or whoever, and it flows through into your tax return. Okay. So um, and it's it works. It's kind of it works a little bit the same as what franking credits do. Um, so yeah, you get a foreign tax credit. But the simplest answer to that is if you make income or capital gains on foreign assets, they are treated just like they were they would be if they were here. 
And so there are some countries like the States where we have a tax treaty with and we fill out that W8 Ben form. Is it, is it W8 Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, well, I assume we don't have a tax treaty with every country. Uh, are there countries where if we hold uh, investments there, we have to pay overseas tax? It depends on what the asset is. Most widely bought um, ETFs and managed funds and stuff that you buy through Australia have actually got an Australian tax jurisdiction, which means that they're kind of doing all of that for you and you're treated as an Australian tax resident. So, yeah, so most of, you know, if you, again, if you're holding, you know, a Vanguard ETF or Platinum or Magellan, they've all got, they've all effectively got an Australian underlying tax unit trust, which all it's doing is flowing the income through to you. Um, if you've gone and bought a Guatemalan coal mine or something and you make that it- is a, on the plan. Yeah, um, or you bought a Ukrainian toll road or something um, and you make a gain in that country where we don't have a double tax agreement, you know, you, you may well pay tax in both jurisdictions. You may well pay tax in that jurisdiction as a non-resident for tax purposes and then you'll pay tax in Australia without getting a credit. But for the equity mates community, for the assets yeah, that they're yeah. holding, most of them will have those Australian um, tax jurisdiction style rules where it's just a flow through and you just add it to your tax return and it's all pretty simple. Mm. Until equity mates pivots to equity mines, I think Guatemalan <laughs> coal mines are, are off the cards. Um, and obviously, if we are buying a Guatemalan coal mine, we will get professional financial advice yep. before we do such a yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and look, foreign foreign tax jurisdictions is a really specific part of tax advice. Um, not something that I do. I'm not, uh, I'm not authorized to provide foreign tax advice. Uh, there are lots of really good accountants out there. So if you are, uh, you know, you, you're, especially if you're a U.S. Uh, citizen living in Australia where you're still carrying a US green card, heaps of uh, really punishing rules um, around that. Go and get some advice. Same with the UK, you know, which we seem to have obviously lots of people coming and going from um, the US and the UK and investing here and still got assets there. It's the sort of thing where you need to go and get really specific advice around that. We're never going to cover it in a Mm -hmm. podcast like this. Um, It's, uh, you know, this sort of stuff for those widely held you know, manage funds and ETFs, it's pretty simple because it's just a flow through. Yeah, and I assume that, you know, we're truly global here, Charlie, not just an Australian audience. Uh, and there's a lot of Australians who are living overseas who still hold like ASX listed investments. But I assume the answer is similar there, that if you're an Australian living overseas holding Australian investments, wondering what the tax treatment is, Get professional advice? Get professional advice. Fairly simple in Australia. Um, we, You are always assumed to be a, uh, a tax resident in Australia until you declare that you're not. Okay. So where you are accepted as not being a resident for tax purposes, then you are treated as a non-resident and the non-resident tax rates are slightly different to the resident tax rates. Um, you, lo- you lose the tax-free threshold and you lose the benefit of the franking credits. Yeah, right. So, um, again, yeah, get advice, but uh, you are always considered to be a resident for tax purposes unless you're not, which is really important. Um, But if you're not, so if you're sitting there listening to this um, while watching, you know, Euro 2020 or something uh, in France and you've been there for a whole stack of time and you're still holding all your Australian shares, uh, then you're going to be taxed as a a non-resident for tax purposes and you lose the benefit of the franking credits, which is the big one. Yeah. So let's move on to deductions. Um, do you claim tax deductions from capital gains as well as from income? No. Okay. No, no. So, so deductions in deductions 
you know, just to find the right words here, being costs, yep. um, they're tax deductible to income. Um, where you've got deductions from capital gains, it's because of capital cost. Yeah, so where your cost base changes, and that will generally only occur for things like you know an investment property where what you're doing is not maintenance but it's upgrade. Your cost of that asset has actually gone up, which means your cost base has gone up, which means that your future capital gain has come down. Yeah, um, there was a question in there about brokerage. Yes. Brokerage adds to your cost base. It's not tax deductible. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. adds to your nice. cost base. Yeah. So if you've bought ten thousand dollars worth of CBA shares, but it's cost you ten thousand and forty four dollars because you've got forty four dollars of brokerage. Your cost base on those shares is ten thousand and forty four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's an important clarification and one that we've heard a few times get wrong. Um, not in the equity mates community, they they wouldn't get that wrong, but um, just around the trap. So I think that's an important clarification. Yeah, it's a capital cost because it's a ta- capital transaction cost for the purchase of that mm. asset. Mm. It's not a cost of maintaining that asset. A cost of maintaining it, if you've got, um, I don't know, a, a broker admin fee where they charge you five bucks a month for access to their platform or something, that's a deductible expense because it's just an ongoing fee that you're paying to have the platform available to you. I think that's a great example. IG, uh, which is an bro- online broker that I use, have a $50 like inactivity fee if you don't do three trades a quarter or something. Um, so that would be tax deductible. Yep. Yep, that's tax deductible because that's a cost of maintaining. That's the cost of maintaining an account, um, which is otherwise there for the production of income. Yeah. That's great to know. Yeah, um, you've saved me fifty dollars, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so then, no, it, just make more trades. <laughs> another one from the community: uh, in interest repayments on investment loans, um, is that a, a cost or a deduction? It's both because you're paying the interest. You're paying the interest expense, and it's tax deductible. Nice. So where you've where you've borrowed money for the purposes of generating income, so where you've borrowed money for the purposes of investment, the interest expense on that loan is tax deductible, but not the principal. But not the that would be nice. So if you start, yeah. So if you start, if you if you start to pay off the principal and you punch potholes uh, portholes into the debt itself, those capital repayments clearly are not tax deductible. Yeah, yeah. Only the interest expense. Yeah. So, and I assume that uh, the interest on investment loans is similar to interest on other types of loans as well. Is like interest, interest, or are there different buckets of interest? Uh, interest is interest as long as the purpose of the borrowings was for the purposes of investment or generating income. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Not a credit card. That, so, yeah, credit card have, interest is not the same. You've, no. you've, got to, you've got to have you've got to have the left and the right hand. So the, if the purposes of the debt is to produce income, so therefore the ATA is going to get some taxable income from you, then you get a deduction for the cost associated with producing that income. Yeah. That's how it works. You've got to have you've got to have both sides of the equation, mm, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So you're only getting a tax deduction because you've gone out and borrowed money and you're spending money trying to drive income, which is going to drive revenue to the tax office. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So Bryce's travel holiday loan is not uh, the interest on that is not tax deductible. <laughs> no, <laughs> I do not have a holiday loan. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I don't know, there's probably some quirky thing there that someone would find a deduction there somewhere because you've gone off to do research in other jurisdictions on what the London Stock Exchange does or something. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if it happens to be at the same time as your honeymoon, and, you know, with, with Harry in a year or two's time, <laughs> then, you know, you're, pr- you're probably sailing close it's to the wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All 
So um, speaking of deductions, um, you know, well, there's a lot of different financial platforms and uh, subscriptions that people can get everything from data providers to things like ShareSite, which help you track investments, to even things like, I guess, the Australian Financial Review. Um, are any of these subscriptions tax deductible? And are there any factors or criteria when determining what is tax deductible? Yeah, so the tax deduction still comes back to uh, are you meeting that cost or are you, are you paying that cost to help you with the provision of the production of, of taxable income? So if you are a race car driver and nothing of what you do or how you generate income is from financial markets, yet you pay a subscription fee to the AFR, then that's not tax deductible. Um, if you work in financial markets, then there's an argument to say that uh, you're doing research and you're getting information and therefore it is tax deductible or it's tax deductible to the, to, to the business. Um, so the criteria is still consistently linking it back to the relevance of that deduction versus the production of income. Does that make sense? Yeah. So just to, you know, plenty of people in the equity mates community have a nine to five job in a non-related financial services, yet they're generating some small dividend income through their investment portfolio. So share, so share platform costs like the IG cost, that'll be tax deductible because the only reason that you've got the platform is to, is to hold shares to produce income. So yes, that's a, that's a relevant expense that would be absolutely deductible. Alrighty. So, um, Let's move across to a few sort of general catch-alls, and one of them is around cryptocurrency from Brody. Now, I know you're doing a bit of work on this at the moment at Pitcher Partners, which is really handy because it is a very grey area. Well, I'm sure it's not, but a lot of people who are trading it might think it's it is. Area, it's a I new area. Is way, yeah. What are the tax rules around crypto at the moment? Do ta- capital gains tax discount apply? You know, yeah. Just the- so. Um- Unlike foreign currency, until such time as someone changes the class of what how the ATO see crypto, it's treated as property. So um, it's a it's a taxable asset from a from a property point of view. So if you buy your cryptocurrency, if you bought your Bitcoin at thirty and you sold it at fifty thousand dollars, then you've made a capital gain, and it's simple as that. And you you know you've you've got the catch that you've got the you've got capital gains tax to pay. If you've held it for less than 12 months, you'll have all of that gain added to your tax return for that year. Um, yeah, so we're going to do a paper that, that we'll share with the Equity Mates community that covers all of the rules around cryptocurrency, but also the monitoring that the ATO are now starting to do around cryptocurrency because it is so fast-paced and it is so hard to prove um, that the ATO have really beefed up their ability to kind of find what people People are doing um, and how much they're, they're using it for trading purposes as opposed to for, uh, you know, pure kind of hold and keep and, mm. then, and then sell it again later on. Mm. And uh, for all of those people who think uh, crypto is anonymous and decentralised <laughs> and can't be traced – you're most likely buying it through a heavily regulated broker. So So they report to the tax office. So, yeah, if you're using um, any of the normal broker accounts – uh, you know, um, what do you guys use? Bamboo, is it right? No, Swiftex. Swiftex yeah. and Bamboo. And Bamboo. Yeah, 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 Swiftex, yeah. Bamboo, Independent Reserve, all those guys have got tax reporting obligations. Yeah. You'll actually see on the website that it says, you know, powered by KPMG tax or whatever it is. They will produce a year-end tax report that comes to you as the investor. Because you've provided your tax file number, it will also flow directly into your tax return. Yeah. So There's um, no getting around it. No, <laughs> no. If you make a gain on something, you've got to pay tax on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you should be 
happy with that. Yep. You've made a game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is just another one from Jonathan, uh, another general. If you move shares from a, a single to a joint name, do you have to pay capital gains tax or any considerations there? Yeah, you do. So if you're moving it from – so, Bryce, with all your shares, if you own them and you've decided now that you're so in love that you want Harry no, to be no. joint owner, um, <laughs> then you're effectively disposing of half of your interest. So you so you, you you're disposing of half of it. So you're going to pay effectively capital gains tax on half of the fact that you. So I lose it. half my net worth. Yeah, that's right. Jeez. Um, so when you say dispose of it, you basically like so you've you're gone sell, from being a, selling half to Harriet. Is that kind of how you conceptualize? Because you've gone from being 100 percent owner to effectively only a 50 percent owner. You've now got an event where you've sold half of it. Because remember now half of the income is going to go into yeah. somebody else's tax return, half the future capital gains. So. Um, yeah, it is a CGT event, but it's only a 50%. It's only a half of an event because you've only got rid of half of it. If you give all of it to somebody else, um, then it's a, then it is, that it is a full CGT event. So it's a hundred percent where you've effectively sold or disposed of that asset. And it's no different to if me as a, um, as an individual decide to sell an asset or move an asset into my family trust or into my super fund as a, as a contribution, I'm disposing of that asset. So um, I have there's a capital gains tax uh, event when that occurs. Now, so the, early- the, the key question is uh, Bryce uh, gives half to Harriet but doesn't get anything in return. Is the price that he's selling it at zero because he got nothing or is it the market price? Prevailing market price yeah. at that time. So you can't get away with it that so way. So sell price. really <laughs> high. So remembering from an ownership point of view, without getting too technical, um, there are uh, there are really there, there are kind of three ways to own things. You can own things by yourself. You can own things jointly, which is often known as joint tenants, or you can own things tenants in common. Yeah. So the difference between joint tenants and tenants in common, joint tenants is we just simply own them together. Tenants in common is there is effectively two names on the register, which 50% really specifically belongs to Bryce and the other 50% really specifically belongs to um, to Harriet or to whoever, right? Um, so in that scenario, you would only do the tenants in common if you're worried from an estate planning point of view, asset protection, um, family law, um, or you actually do want someone to pay you for it because then you would be holding them in, in that way. Where you're just holding it jointly it's just assumed that it's effectively a gift mm-hmm. because then if one of you if one of you die the other one just automatically owns the rest of it whereas with tenants in common uh, if one of you die the other 50% actually goes into their estate oh okay and then it follows their will and all of yep. that yeah. Let's not go down that path yeah. at the moment. Um, so, Charlie, we want to thank you for uh, taking the time today. We do have a couple more. One from Craig, which I'm going to hope was meant in jest. Um, how does the ATO identify targets? Uh I don't always know, to be honest. I, I think there is certainly some high-risk individuals and, um, you know, I, I would think that most of the time it's with people with really large taxable incomes or people that have done, um, you know, kind of really big transactions um, uh, or there's significant changes in somebody's tax return is often how the ATO um, will identify them, I think. I don't always know. I think high-risk individuals tend to be people with big complex structures mm. um, where, um, you know, where 
assets seem to outstrip income. Um, you know, I, I would think that most of the people in the equity mates community are low risk from a ATO scrutiny point of view. Um, but equally, you know, the systems are pretty powerful yeah, now. You know, you're getting dividend statements. Put the stuff in your tax return and pay your tax, and you'll yeah. be sweet. Yeah, yeah, and just don't be stupid with deductions as well. Like it's it's not worth getting done by the ATO to save a few dollars on tax. Mm, mm. Yeah. And then final question, as we mentioned at the start of the interview, um, getting a financial professional to help you prepare your tax is tax deductible, which is great. Um, What advice would you have on finding a good accountant or tax professional? And similarly, are there any red flags or people or companies to avoid if you really want to get personal and name and shame. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, not really. I mean, the Australian tax system is pretty simple. Um, you know, the, 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 the pre-fill arrangements means that, you know, most of the information gets captured anyway as a result of your tax file number being on those those investments. Look, I'm a big one for using professional services. Like, mm. you know, I'm a partner of professional services. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be um, weird if you said otherwise. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think it's like anything, like if – you're smarter than the person sitting across the other side of the table, then don't use them. Um, if they can add value, so make sure you're talking to people that can add value and have good conversations with you around this stuff. But yeah, go and get advice. Get your tax done by a, a good accountant. Make sure you're maximising what you can do and make sure you're getting all your structures etc. right. And, and yeah, just to be really clear, all of this stuff today has been general in nature um, and as it relates to investments, I'm not allowed to give actual tax advice over these types of things and I'm not actually allowed to give tax advice, um, you know, where it doesn't relate to planning and where it doesn't relate to uh, investments. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an important point to end on. None of us know anyone's personal circumstances. Bryce and I don't know anything at all. Um, So We worked that out along the way, didn't we? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But look, Charlie, we want to thank you for coming in uh, and helping us uh, understand this, uh, this whole world of tax a little bit better. I can think we safely say we got Bryce excited about tax. Yeah, uh, certainly cleared up a lot there, Charlie. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you, gents. Always, always a pleasure. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 